And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, it's Tuesday. And that means also we have our technical update on our website as well. Uh, which is actually called Bear Trap. That's is kind of the interesting uh, position that we're in with the markets right now. Of course, lots of expectations as we kind of discussed yesterday, you know, risk of a recession, those type of things, yet the markets continue to do fairly well. Now, yesterday markets did open up and challenge that 20-day moving average resistance that we talked about yesterday. Got above it early in the morning, thought we were going to clear that for the day, but uh, gave it up by the end of the day and, and again, finished below that resistance level. So again, this kind of first test of resistance uh, didn't really work out well for the markets. We're going to try again this morning. Uh, futures are a little bit flat. We'll see how we get closer uh, to the bell this morning. But again, we're also wrapping up earnings season. And today we have Jerome Powell speaking before the, the before Congress. So again, one of the reasons kind of the market sold off yesterday was anticipation of what he's going to say today. Again, the, the fear is, is that he's going to be very hawkish and talk about hiking rates more. Inflation remains an issue. Economic growth is too strong right now. And this kind of also feeds into this conversation that we had yesterday uh, talking about a recession and the risk of that recession, et cetera. You know, one of the things that's been kind of interesting to watch is that if you're having a recession or are going to be in a recession, you would think that companies that are directly involved economically would not be doing well. This is industrials. This is the uh, industrial ETF um, <laughs> basically doing exceptionally well. And more importantly, industrials are challenging basically back to all-time highs on the industrial side of, of the, the, the ledger. Um, also, basic materials is another, another area of the economy that you would say, okay, well, if you're going to have a recession, things are slowing down, manufacturing slowing down, people are buying less, uh, basic materials shouldn't be doing well. They've been doing very, very well. Uh, this year uh, also. And again, that's kind of the interesting juxtaposition here between the views of, well, the economy is going to be in a recession, but yet the things that are most economically sensitive tied to the economy are actually doing pretty well. So again, this, it's this, this, this tug of war between you know, expectations and what's actually happening. Now, part of this rally in materials and particularly uh, with the industrials also is a function of something else that may impact whether or not we have a recession or the, the type of that recession. One thing we haven't talked about is that $1.7 trillion infrastructure spending bill. A lot of people, you know, buying in, in industrial stocks right now in anticipation they're going to get a big windfall from the industrial, or sorry, from the infrastructure, uh, sorry, I will say that, the Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA. We'll just do, we'll use the acronym IRA. Um, a lot of people expecting those stocks to get a boost, of course, you know, chasing that kind of anticipation. But that is a lot of money coming into the economy for different things that will potentially keep the economy going longer than we, than we thought. So again, you know, this is also the challenge for the Federal Reserve at the same time. You know, they're trying to hike rates to slow economic growth, but damn it, economic growth just isn't really slowing down that much right now. And this is going to be the challenge for the Fed. And this is one of the risks that the Fed's going to run into because 
that that IRA, um, that Inflation Reduction Act, that money is is you know as, as Barack Obama found out in 2008 when we did an infrastructure spending package back then, those jobs really aren't that shovel ready. And when that money kind of hits the economy, it takes time, right, to do an infrastructure project. Those just don't go up overnight, so the spending is really spread out over time. Um, so it may soften the blow of an economic slowdown or recession, but it probably won't be enough to actually avert it. So again, and so, but the risk that the Fed has got is that the Fed is looking at this kind of very strong economic data that's going on right now, hiking rates, thinking that they're not doing enough but all that lag effect we've talked about before is going to kick in. And so again, as we discussed yesterday, one of the big risks for investors right now is rallying the markets here in particular um, this, with this idea that we're going to avoid a recession, but it may just be delayed a lot longer than we think. And again, it shows up, you know, first quarter of next year. And then that's where all this stuff kind of works through the system, all those lag effects catches up, et cetera. But this is the risk we run right now. And again, when you take a look at the S&P as a whole, um, you know, outside of industrials and materials, obviously not doing nearly as well as some sectors of the markets. And but again, the 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 uptrend remains intact here. We're breaking above moving averages. And this is really the context of the article today on the website. So if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, click on the link. Um, for, for our insights tab, you know, the first blog up is basically called bear trap. And this is what it's talking about is you're getting the sell off. Everybody's like, okay, the bull rally's over. Now we're back to the bear market, but then the market starts rallying again and it catches all the bears off sides. That's kind of what happened over the last couple of days. And we'll see if we get some follow through today, but this is, this is going to be the challenge for investors here over the course of the next couple of months as we look through that. But again, when we go back and we, and we take a look at all the economic data, there's certainly, yes, I'm, I'm not discounting at all the risk to the economy or to the markets. I'm not saying there's no risk of recession. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is, is there's a lot of expectations that we're going to have a recession sooner than later. And it might just be the later part that catches a lot of investors offside. But that's the way markets also work. Markets tend to do their, their best job of luring investors off sides in one direction or the other, and then really smacks them about the head and shoulders pretty good after that. So one way or the other, the markets tend to kind of work against investor psychology. And again, this is why we talk about contrarian investing and thinking about the other side of the coin and trying to evaluate all these things. There's so many different impacts to an economy from consumer spending to, uh, to debt, uh, to Wells, the government spending. And again, we've got a lot of government spending still up in the pipelines. Again, that Infra Inflation Reduction Act, that's $1.7 trillion of money that's floating around out there that, you know, we're looking at the consumer going, well, the consumer's running out of money because of high interest rates. Yeah, but there's still another $1.7 trillion floating around in a $20 trillion economy. That's not minuscule. That's good. That's, that can help support growth for a while. But again, it's also about the impact of that money on the economy. Does it create productive ac economic activity that then regenerates itself? Or is it a one-time shot into the economy that gets kind of wasted, which is what happens with most of these spending bills? And so you have this very short-term blip of economic activity, and then it fades away. And that's probably the risk that we're looking at. And again, another reason to kind of think about as you're positioning your portfolios, 
really just kind of focusing right now on the technicals, kind of set, set aside some of those bigger macro issues for right now because there's so, so many things kind of floating around at the moment that we don't really have a good firm grasp on. The technicals will kind of help guide you through this a bit. Now, again, this is just going to help you mitigate some risk in your portfolio of being offsides at the wrong time. But again, as we kind of as we kind of go out further into the future here, the lag effects of all these rate hikes will start to have an impact on the economy. Will they be more than some of this economic data suggests and, and pushes the economy to a much lower growth rate? That's what the Fed wants to have happen. And so we'll see if that occurs. One thing also, too, is that we had a very we had a very bad slate of economic data for several months in a row. Not surprising to see a little bit of economic activity pick up, but then you'll get another lag off here again. So some of the strong economic data is just simply a, re a reflexive rebound of activity. I mean, you know, inventory's getting drawn down, people run out of stuff, they gotta go buy stuff. Nothing goes straight down or straight up. So again, when we take a look at this data, just kind of take it as with a grain of salt and see where we need to go to next. Okay, quick break, we'll be right back. More coming up on The Real Investment Show. daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show YouTube channel has all our videos ready for your easy access. Now with the new and improved Before the Bell reports, Candid Coffee, and Lunch and Learn replays, plus each day's radio shows like Technically Speaking Tuesday, Financial Fitness Friday, and the latest analysis from Lance Roberts and Michael Leibowitz. Subscribe and bookmark our YouTube channel for The Real Investment Show, or just click on the show links at realinvestmentadvice.com realinvestmentadvice.com the real investment show and welcome back to the show this morning so the big news today of course is going to be Jerome Powell this is going to be really what drives markets in one direction or the other. So this morning, futures are kind of flattish in anticipation of kind of waiting for what he's going to say. It's also a busy week this week for economic releases as well. So we've got uh, the employment report on Friday. So a lot of things are going to be moving markets in one direction or the other. So again, just buckle up, buttercup. It's going to be a, a potentially volatile week. And it may be something that, you know, we wind up this week being, you know, 5% higher or 3% lower. I mean, it's just depends on, you know, kind of what happens. If the employment data is too strong on Friday, that's going to, you know, that's going to start improving odds for a 50 basis point right hike at the at, at, on March the 22nd of this month at the FOMC meeting. Markets won't like that. So we market sell off. If the employment number is a lot weaker, Bad news on the economy, but good news for the Fed pivot, right? I, I was reading an article yesterday, and again, this is something that we I keep seeing a lot of. But you know, this analyst, I believe it was it was for one of the major banks. I can't remember now which one, but you know, he's saying, well, the 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 pause is the new pivot. So if the Fed just pauses rate hikes, that's as good as a pivot. That 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 is not the same thing. Rate cuts and stubbornly high interest rates are not the same thing, right? 
But the markets may look at it as like, okay, thank God, you know, the, the Fed stopped hiking rates. So I'm going to buy now in anticipation of the rate cuts. Hey, I get the, I get the thesis, right? But they're not the same. So again, just just kind of buckle up. There's there's going to be a good bit of volatility this week, one direction or the other, and I really have no idea which way it's going to go. But Powell's uh, testifying today before uh, Congress. He'll actually do it twice this week, today and then again on Thursday. He's going to be uh, in front of the. It's the every year, uh, Jerome, the Fed chairman, testifies before the Senate uh, Banking Committee and then the House of Financial Services Committee. So today is the Senate Banking Committee. Thursday is the House Financial Services Committee. And I said Thursday. I, I apologize. Today and tomorrow. I, my apologies. Wednesday. I just totally forgot a day of the week. Anyway, it's early. I didn't sleep well last night. Anyway, uh, well, the stated purposes of the appearance, of course, is the semiannual just kind of up, update and some monetary policy report. Uh, there's going to be a lot of questions thrown at Jerome Powell about hiking interest rates. Of course, expect Elizabeth Warren to do her annual grandstanding in front of Jerome Powell um, with her Indian feather. Um, <laughs> she's going to be looking for scalps. That's all I'm saying. Uh, anyway, she'll be you know testifying about you know the average American and you're you're making it hard on the average American and they can't make ends meet and what are you doing and so forth and so on. Um, Here's what Bloomberg expects him to say. Uh, Powell will provide his read on the latest confusing trove of economic data. Uh, recent labor market data has obviously been very strong. So this is really putting a kind of a conundrum on this idea of, you know, cutting rate hikes sooner than later. He's also going to emphasize that most of the important takeaway from the recent data is that Taming inflation requires sustained effort. And this is going to be the line that markets don't like as much. And if he if he starts saying things like the economy is remaining too strong and we haven't done enough, markets really won't like that. Especially if he starts to hint that a 50 basis point rate hike at the end of this month is becoming more likely. Bloomberg Economics Fed spectrometer rates Powell as one of the more hawkish individuals on the FOMC. It's possible he may endorse that upward shift in market pricing to a terminal rate of 5.5%. So the terminal rate, remember we've said this before, the terminal rate, you hear this term thrown around a lot. But what that means is, is that's the expected end. That's the where they will terminate rate hikes. It was 5%. It went to 55 now we're expected to shift that up to five and a half. Now, remember the lag effect. Nine to 12 months for a rate hike to show up in the economy. So just assuming 12 months on average, that means that first rate hike in March of last year is just starting to impact the market. There's 475 basis points of rate hikes not even in the economy yet. And we're talking about taking that to five and a half percent. So that's a lot of monetary tightening within the economy that hasn't shown up. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that we have a lot of other things going on in the economy supporting economic growth. So again, be careful. Don't say, well, Lance just said, you know, 5.5% not even in the economy. That's, a, that's clearly going to be a recession. We've got inverted yield curves. We talked about that yesterday. Clearly a recession. Be careful with that. I'm not saying this time is different. I'm saying it could be lagged. 
Powell's going to try to say that policymakers still have a determine the ultimate destination of rates. That's also consistent with uh, what other Fed members have said as of late in recent speeches. Of course, the payroll data on Friday and then CPI next week on the 14th is going to be critical inputs into their policy decision-making for their meeting on the 22nd. So the next couple of weeks are going to be very important. You know, this so what I would expect to come out of the meeting today is going to be something of a more hawkish tilt. Now, he made a mistake earlier this year when he said that they don't pay attention to monetary. Well, actually, I said earlier this year, actually in December. And that's really what fueled part of this rate run that we've had, you know, so far this year. But, you know, he made the he made the mistake of saying we don't really care about monetary conditions in the short term. Of course, the bulls took that to mean green light to go buy stocks. So that's really not the case. They do care about monetary conditions. And again, when we talk about financial tightening, and we've said this before, the reason that the Fed is doing what they're doing is not just attacking inflation in an isolated bubble. You can't do that. I can't just go attack inflation. I'm going to hike rates and inflation will come down and everything else will be just fine. That, that's not the way that it works. Inflation is a function of supply and demand. And so when we injected $5 trillion worth of liquidity into an economy where everything was shut down, you got inflation. There was just too much supply. I mean, sorry, too much demand and no supply. And all this money is still kind of floating around. It's changing hands, but it's still out there in the economy. We've talked about recently, you know, the, the very high level of monetary supply, M2, as a percentage of the overall economy. It's still very high. It's, it's coming down, but it's very high, and it's going to take a while for that all that, look, all that monetary stimulus to work its way through the system. It just takes time. So in order to, to bring down inflation, you've got to slow demand. You've got to make things so painful on consumers that they stop buying. That allows supply to exceed demand. That brings prices down. They, you know, and voila, you have less inflation. So, you know, this is, and of course, the, the, the risk to that for the Fed is that they hike rates to the point that inflation slows down as consumers contract, and the consumers keep contracting, bringing inflation down more and more and more until you get deflation, and that's where consumers are basically just contracting and saying, I'll just, I'm just not gonna, I'm not going to buy hardly anything. I'm just going to buy the bare necessities because prices keep coming down. I'll just wait. That's the risk, and that's where you get into a recession. That's where you get other bad outcomes in the economy. And that's where the Fed kind of loses control of the narrative, so to speak, and, and the psychology of consumers take over. You know, this idea that the Fed can just reduce inflation back to 2% and then stop it right there is a very risky bet because, again, it has nothing to do with the Fed. All the Fed can do is hike rates and, and inject monetary liquidity. But if consumers began to contract 
and psychologically embed themselves into that deflationary mindset, inflation will fall below 2% because it's a very hard psychology to break. So that's the risk that the Fed runs. Of course, Republican lawmakers are likely to question whether the Fed is behind the curve again, citing the easing in financial conditions since October 22nd. Powell's want to push back on this idea, of course, with this idea that financial conditions have loosened. He may argue that as in the monetary policy report he submitted ahead of the testimony, financial conditions have tightened further since June and are significantly tighter than a year ago. But we're talking two different things. This is the interesting conundrum. Yes, financial conditions are tighter in terms of higher interest rates, but financial conditions in terms of consumer sentiment, spending, those type of things have loosened, and the stock market. Right? So we go back to 20, 2010, and Ben Bernanke said, why do we do QE? Because quantitative easing boost asset prices, higher asset prices, boost consumer confidence. Consumer confidence leads to stronger economic growth. And so as markets rally, that loses, loosens financial conditions on the consumer. And that's why consumer confidence, ever since October, as the market has been rallying, consumer confidence has been what? Improving. That is not really what the Fed wants. They don't want to acknowledge that because if they acknowledge that, that means they're going to have to hike rates faster and further, and they don't want to spook the markets. Be right back after the break. Investment Advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, <clears throat> talk a little bit about just uh, pay attention to what's going to happen today, tomorrow, Friday which is Employment Day next week, Inflation Day. Again, just lots of stuff to be driving markets kind of bonkers over the next few days as everybody's trying to reprice in what the Fed will do. Uh, but again, you know, there is a bullish bias to the markets. So keep that in mind also. What markets are looking for right now, the psychology is bullish for the market. Therefore, the markets are looking for anything supportive of the bullish narrative. So anything that is uttered that may be perceived as bullish will likely fuel stocks higher because that's the trend we're in right now. So again, this is why technicals become so important in managing your, your portfolio short term. But one thing that we had talked about, there was a really good article out today in the Wall Street Journal talking about why a recession is always six months away. And this is the interesting argument that we've been having now 
over the last six months, <laughs> you know, ironically, as we've been talking about, hey, be careful with this recession idea that just because we have the inverted yield curve, we're supposed to have an immediate recession. And remember last year we were saying that too many people were expecting a recession for a recession to actually occur. Um, as Bob Farrell always says, is that when you have when all experts agree, something else tends to happen. And that's just a, a function of psychology and the markets and how things work. So when, we, when we're talking about, you know, a recession and you're talking about indicators, leading economic indicators, you're talking about inverted yield curves, as we said with inverted yield curves, it's not the inversion that's your, that's your signal. It's when they uninvert. And that's going to be the moment where the Fed is now cutting rates and, and having to try to avert the impact of that recession. That's when you'll know the recession has been kicking in. But we're not there yet. The, new the next economic downturn, this is according to the Wall Street Journal, has become the most anticipated recession in U.S. history, as we said six months ago. It also keeps getting postponed. It's not really getting postponed. Again, this is the problem. The way the media views these data points is that, oh, you have a data point, that means X is supposed to happen. Let me give you a good example of this. Valuations. Valuations reach 30 times earnings in 2020, right? 2021. And everybody says, well, valuations, 30 times earnings, that means you've got to have a bear market. And then nothing, then you don't have a bear market the next day. Then so everybody says, well, see, valuations are wrong. Well, they're not wrong. It just took time for things to catch up to the valuations in the market. Valuations are just a reflection of what's happening with earnings and market psychology. And so it takes something, takes an event to revert prices to lower valuations. That's what happened last year. So again, the problem with the media is, is that the media is always looking at X indicator which historically has always predicted some event, but if event B doesn't happen immediately after signal A, then obviously signal A is wrong. That's just not the way things work. Things take time. We talked about the momentum, right? Economic momentum, and, and it's like driving a car down the hill. You put on the brakes. It takes time for the car because of gravity pulling that momentum of the car to slow down. Just doesn't happen on a dime. And this is the mistake that investors make, and this is why investors always tend to buy in right at the top because they go, well, the recession didn't happen. I better buy. And so they go jumping in, and that's right when the recession starts. So, you know, this is why we always have to be careful with this stuff. But let me just continue on. Recent strong hiring and consumer spending are the latest evidence that the pandemic and unprecedented policy measures that followed are interfering with the Federal Reserve's campaign to tame inflation. The government stimulus measures left household and business finances in unusually strong shape. Shortages of materials and workers mean companies are still struggling to satisfy demand for rate-sensitive goods, such as homes and autos. Eh, that's not exactly correct, but we'll just go with it for right now. Americans are splurging on labor-intensive activities that they avoided in recent years, including dining out, travel, and live entertainment. So this is the where the conundrum comes in. They're like, well, see, we have all the strong economic activity, so how can you possibly have a recession? 
Ray Ferris, chief economist at, at Credit Suisse, says it's the Godot's recession. Of course, we're always waiting on Godot, right? He never comes, but we're always waiting. If you don't know the reference, go look it up. Should have learned that in school. Anyway, <laughs> I throw these things around at my house and my kids just look at me like I'm crazy. You're not talking about Gal Gadot then? No, no. Different Gadot. I'm, I'm still waiting on her too. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. Go look that one up too. <laughs> yes. Something to do with Wonder Woman. Anyway, it's Gadot's recession. We're waiting on it to show up and it never comes, of course. And this is uh, Mr. Ferris has now found himself among the small minority of economists last fall who predicted the economy would narrowly skirt a downturn this year. Every six months, economists have predicted a recession six months later. By the middle of the year, people are still expecting a recession six months to come. And this is the this is exactly the issue that I was talking about previously, which is that you have to understand that the signal and the event are not necessarily immediate. And also, you have to understand how the signals work. For example, the yield curve. The inversion of the yield curve is not the signal to a recession. It's the warning. Right. All it tells you is, is that the environment is in a position. It is weak enough that you can have a recession. The recession occurs when the yield curve uninverts. That's your signal. Yield curves have not uninverted yet. And again, when you have all this liquidity in the system, you have all this money floating around, you have all this other thing, these, these other impacts like the, the Inflation Reduction Act, putting more and more stimulus into the economy, things get delayed or even avoided. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to avoid a recession, right? There's a lot of indicators that say we should have a recession, but we need an event. We need an event. And that event will be a function of something maybe caused by the Fed hiking rates too much. You have a credit-related event. But you have a lot of abnormalities that are in the markets today that we haven't had previously. Again, look at home prices as a good example. 50% of all mortgages that are currently in the system were created in 2020-2021. 50%. You had a massive rush of people running out to buy houses, which drove house prices up. Home price equity is light years above incomes. It's unsustainable. You will have to have a correction at some point, but what causes that is a different issue. High interest rates may be restricting individuals from buying homes, but it is also restricting individuals from selling homes, which is impacting supply. If I own a home and I've got a 3.5% mortgage on my house, why would I sell it? Because I've got to turn around and take out another mortgage at 6.5%. So when I'm looking at buying an equal house, so let's say I live in a $500,000 house, example, and my mortgage payment is $2,500 a month. If I sell my house 
I either have to buy a smaller house, a $300,000 house or a $400,000 house to keep my payment at 2500 or my mortgage payment is going to go up substantially when I buy a $500,000 house somewhere else because of the higher interest rate. So there is a disincentive for people to sell their house. I'm like, I'm okay with my house. I don't need to sell it, right? Because if I sell it, my mortgage payment's going up. I can't really afford that. So I'm just going to stay where I am. And that's restricting supply. That's keeping house prices elevated. But that kind of dynamic works its way through the entire economy. Higher interest rates stop spending in some parts of the economy. But these activities, when people have a lot of liquidity or there's access to liquidity through debt, et cetera, can keep these activities going on longer than we expected. And, that, and this is why the, the economists keep making this mistake of saying, well, we're going to have a, a recession six months. And that's really not the case. When you take a look at the inverted yield curve, as an example again, the recession starts six to nine months after the uninversion of the yield curve. And we're just now starting to uninvert yield curves on the very, very short end. So the, the recession predictions six and nine months ago were wrong because they used the wrong signal. So now we're getting more and more people coming out saying, see, no recession. That's actually a good sign if you're expecting and wanting a recession to get lower prices on stuff. The good sign is you're getting more and more people off of that recession talk into the no landing, soft landing, no recession camp. That allows for something else to actually happen. Be right back after the break. Daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. So, I uh, just kind of wrapping up our conversation this morning. Uh, So as you're kind of looking forward to the markets for the rest of this week, again, just be a little bit cautious uh, taking bets. You know, the, the technical backdrop is continuing to become more bullish. And yesterday's attempt to break above the 20-day moving average was a very good first attempt at that. Didn't quite make it. But again, first attempts often don't make it. So again, might get a little bit of a pullback here for a day or two and then another attempt higher. The 100-day moving average is now crossing above the 200-day moving average. That is also another bullish sign for the markets. It means that prices have now momentum behind them. And you're getting more and more of that bullish kind of mindset behind equity. So again, it's, this, is the, this is the very hard part about investing money. And this is the challenge that we face emotionally and psychologically relating to our portfolios. We've got to set that stuff aside. 
you know, again, when I, you know, there's a lot of videos running around right now with people claiming, you know, the, the, the you know, interest rates are going to 10% and the dollar is going to zero and the, the world's going to end. And, and maybe the case, I mean, look, there's a very dire headline out this morning. The government is trying to kill us now. Low-income Americans fume at mile-long food lines after pandemic benefits. And we talked about this yesterday, that the SNAP program, that's the sub, sub, I'll spit that out. Look, it's Tuesday morning. It's early. I haven't had nearly enough coffee. Supplemental Nutrition Program, Assistance Program, that's SNAP. So that's your food stamps. And during the pandemic, because so many people lost their jobs, we expanded those benefits and those expired yesterday. Let me just read, read to you a little bit from the, the article here. I thought, wow, quote, this is a quote, by the way, I'm just reading to you. I thought, wow, the government is trying to kill us now, said 63-year-old Danny Blair of Kentucky. Blair, who lives in a mobile home with his wife, Survives on his Social Security disability check, the Washington Post reports. They're going to starve us out, Blair continued, apparently unaware that the government assistance program provided during the pandemic wasn't permanent. Blair and his wife hop into their tuck twice a month at 4 a.m. to ensure that they get the few staples at Hazel Green Food Project's giveaway. On a recent Friday, they waited nine hours until local prisoners on work duty started loading bags of meat and vegetables, potato chips and cookies into vehicles in one of the nation's most impoverished communities. From the front to the back of the line, the sea of despair and hardship along this desolate Kentucky highway foreshadowed what may be in store for millions of Americans as the federal government ended the the remaining pandemic increase in monthly food stamp benefits this week. This is according to the Washington Post. So there's a few things to take away from the story, which is, look, we have a impoverished segment of our population, no doubt about it. So does every country in the world. And no matter what you do, you will always have an impoverished segment of the economy. It is just how economics works. It's unfortunate we do things that we try to fix these things. Let me give you a good example. How long have we been sending money to Africa to help starving Africans? It's been decades. I mean, I remember growing up in the in the 70s and seeing the commercials on television with, you know, the starving African children and the tears and you can, you know, just send a nickel a day at that time and, you know, save the life. We've been doing this for, for decades upon decades upon decades, and it's not gotten any better. Now, is that a function? And, and I'm asking a question. I'm not making a statement. So don't go flying off the rails and sending me emails. But this is the question. Is it a function of not sending enough money? Or is it a systemic cultural uh, issue thing that for some reason there is this ingrained poverty has a lot to do with warlords but there's this ingrained poverty in Africa but that happens in every country right we in, in every country I mean we can talk about the people in in Syria and the the people in the Middle East and I mean there's just whole segments of the global population and, and, and we hear about this, right? That we hear about people living on $2 a week 
or $2 a month in income. And we talked about this before in the, in the United States as well. In the United States, if you make $30,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of income earners worldwide. So that tells you what the rest of the world is dealing with versus the U.S. But we still have a poverty problem here. We have people like in Kentucky that are dependent upon Social Security and food stamps, welfare, etc. to survive. You know, the problem is that when we do these government programs, and I wrote an article about this, it's on our website, and I wrote this right after the right after President Biden passed the additional stimulus payment. And this was in uh, March 29th of 2021. It's called Biden Stimulus Will Cut Poverty by 40% for One Year. And this was at the time the Center of Budget and Policy Priorities stated that the President Biden's stimulus bill will cut the number of children in poverty by 40%. Let me just read to you the, the quote from the, the study at the time. The current child tax credit and EITC together lift more children above the poverty line, 5.5 million, than any other economic support program. This level of poverty reduction was achieved through multiple expansions of the EITC and the child tax credit since their respective enactments since 1997, 1975 and 1997. The House proposals, with one significant change to child tax credit, will lift another 4.1 million children above the poverty line, cutting the remaining number of children in poverty by more than 40%. That was what was thought was going to happen, and it did. When you give people a bunch of money, sending checks to households, and we were sending direct payments to households, yes. You will lift people above the poverty line momentarily until one of two things happens. Either A, the money goes away, and then they go right back to where they were, or B, you cause inflation because you're sending money directly to households. They go out and spend that money creating inflated prices, which basically eliminates the whole increase of the money you gave them. It deflates that value. And they wind right back up in poverty, which is exactly what happens. Actually, what happened is that we now have more people in poverty now than we did before because of the inflation effect. And this is what has happened in Kentucky and other places around the country. Yes, we gave them some more money on these food stamp programs to help them during a time that people were getting laid off. Noble in nature, right? The idea was right. The problem was is that nobody sat around. The economists that run our country didn't go, if we do this, we're going to create a bunch of inflation. So you only have two choices at that point. Either, and this is what we've talked about before, you know, there was a lot of talk about wanting to do universal basic income, UBIs. Right? We should send everybody in the country $2,000 a month as a base salary. And then they can go be artists and musicians or whatever they want to do, but they don't have to worry about paying rent and food and those type of things. And that's great. That's fine. You could you can do that if you want, right? But you're going to cause inflation because when a business owner, A, 
and this is this is one of the problems with the child tax credit, right? We're going to increase the child tax credit so more people can afford to have daycare for children, child care help, so both parents can go to work. Well, that's great. And as soon as you send people the money, the child, the people providing the child care go what? They go, oh, yeah, my rate was $100 an hour. Now it's 150 because I know you've got more money to spend. That's where the inflation comes from. See, these things don't work in isolation. I can't just give Brent $50 and say, here, go spend $50. And everybody else sits there and goes, well, I'm just, you know, I know Brent's got more money, so I'm just going to keep my prices the same. That's not the way economics work. That's not the way capitalism works. When I give Brent money, there's more supply, there's more demand for the limited supply of goods that I have. And think about child care for a second. This is a really good analogy. As an individual, first, there's rules and regulations around how many kids I can care for at one time in one building. So if all of a sudden everybody's got more money that couldn't before afford childcare, but now they can because now we've given them additional money, they go to enroll their kid in, 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 in classes or childcare facilities. And the childcare facilities go, man, I'm completely booked. So I'm going to have to open another facility, which I'm going to have to raise my cost because now I've got to hire more childcare people. I've got to, you know, hire more, you know, uh, attendants. I've got to have more stuff to do, right? So care costs go up. The problem is, is that we do these things with the best of intentions, but what we don't realize is that when these programs end, now all these people that were getting these benefits have lifted their lifestyle because of that to a unsustainable level when those benefits go away. And so, yes, you have exactly this type of outcome. Lots of dissension over the ending of child tax credits. Lots of dissension over the ending of the SNAP program. Kind of comes at a bad time, too, with elections coming up. All right, that wraps up the show. I'm your host, Science Roberts. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow, Wednesday's edition of the Real Investment Show. Danny Ratliff will join me then. We'll talk more about you and your money. Have a great day. Get by the website. Our new blog post is out on Bear Trap. That is on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day.